You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. All of them, even Hamilton, had survived ragdoll wipeouts on massive faces. They knew what it felt like to be pummeled by the wave, come to the surface, and then be efficiently whisked to safety by a partner who had his act together. That feeling was far more poignant than mere relief. You come away and you've cheated something, Lickle said. I don't like to say death, but it's true. It's like you've been given another ticket. To Hamilton's mind, the real peril in falling wasn't physical, even in the case of fatal injury. You wouldn't even know. It'd be the people you left behind. His deepest fear, he said, was not death, but rather being pounded so bad that psychologically you don't recover. It was New Year's Day 2000 when this almost happened to Dave Kalama. Jaws was pumping out 50-foot waves, and Kalama was feeling aggressive. I was thinking, I am just going to tear this place up today, he said. His usual partner, Hamilton, was off the island, so Lickle had towed him into three gorgeous, glassy waves. Then, the fourth. This wave was an ugly stepsister, its face studded with bumps. When Kalama hit one the wrong way, he found himself flying backward, looking up at the curling, menacing lip. He remembers thinking, this is going to get interesting. Sucked over the falls, the most disastrous place to be, he caught a flash of blue sky before being slammed down and driven 30 feet deep. Panicking burns oxygen, so he tried to stay calm, tucking in his arms and legs as the wave released its energy, then making for the surface. He was inches from getting a breath when the next wave hit, pinballing him back into the depths. Two-wave hold-downs were serious. This might be it, Kalama thought. But let's see. When the second wave released him, he broke the surface and saw Lickle nearby. Kalama grabbed the rescue sled, but another mountain of water was already upon them. When it hit, the ski was sucked backward into a whitewater hole, and Kalama was ripped off the sled and thrust down again, even deeper this time. I could feel it by the pressure in my ears, he said. Whitewater blocks out the light, so below the surface everything was black. Kalama, exhausted and disoriented, didn't know which way was up. He began to convulse, his body straining to take a lungful of water, while his mind was still barely able to prevent it. Later, he would be told that this was the first stage of drowning. By luck or skill or grace, he resurfaced, and again, Lickle was there. Kalama made a desperate lunge for the sled, but Jaws wasn't done with him yet. Another wave exploded on top of them and sent the ski tumbling. We were rolling underwater, Kalama said. Lickle's feet smacked Kalama's head, but both men held tight, and in 30 seconds they were back in calmer waters. Kind of a rough way to start the new century, Kalama said. It was baby steps to build my confidence back up. It took me three years to feel like I was in control again. Susan Casey is the editor-in-chief of O, the Oprah magazine. She's the author of The Devil's Teeth, a true story of obsession and survival among America's great white sharks. Her new book is The Wave, In Pursuit of the Rogues, Freaks, and Giants of the Ocean. Thank you for joining me, Susan. Thank you. You know, Susan, when I read this book, it struck me how the impossible, the absolutely inconceivable, often proves to be true and then becomes the object of our obsessions. Well, that's the theme that makes me want to write a book. That's always what I'm looking for. And and if if that comes across in the wave, that's exactly what I intended. Because I think that nature produces things that are so sublime that sitting in our houses and going about modern life, we often forget that sort of mix of terror and beauty that, that only nature really at its 
peak of power can provide. You know, for many years, scientists denied even the possibility that huge waves could exist. They said that physics wouldn't support it. And when I read that, I was reminded of a quote by Arthur C. Clarke who said, if an elderly but distinguished scientist says something is possible, he is almost certainly right. And if he says that it is impossible, he is very probably wrong. And that proved to be the case with these waves, didn't it? Right. In 1995, when they could not deny it any longer because uh, an 84-foot wave hit an oil rig and it popped out of 35 or 36-foot seas, they had the measurement. So the wave had hit the rig at that level and they had a laser. So all of a sudden it wasn't, this is not possible. You know, you can't have a wave that's three times or two times or four times as big as the surrounding sea. That doesn't work in our equations. And it was now, oh, how is this happening? So all the old tales are true. What drew you to the subject of giant waves? I saw a 25-foot wave, and I was so astonished by how terrifying it was that I've never forgotten it. And it was like 18 or 19 years ago, and I'm not somebody who's scared of the ocean. I spend a lot of time in it. I'm a competitive swimmer. And this thing was just like unlike anything I'd ever seen before. It was I didn't even have the same experience when I first came face-to-face with a very big great white shark. This wave was just so much more powerful, inexorably more powerful than anything we could dish out that I never, ever forgot it. And when I started seeing pictures of guys, little ant-like men on 80- and 90-foot waves, I, I just had so many questions. Who are they? Who does this? What happens if they fall? You know, and, and I just it seemed surreal to me. It was so extreme that I was very intrigued. Well, one of the things I thought that you did very well in this book was introduce us to, to these people, the tiny figures on the waves, and you made them human, and you drew a line between them and the scientists and this, the majesty of these waves and the kind of unknowability of the science and a kind of a mystic spot in between, I think, where all these meet, where there's not quite science and there's not quite religion, but there's some kind of real power there. I think it's a very primal power. I mean, the idea of a giant wave outside of the sun, there's hard, it's hard to come up with a with a, a, a force that, you know, not that waves are exactly a force, but it, an element of nature that that could be that majestic and that powerful and, and yet at the same time still holds so many mysteries. Well, one of the things I thought that was really interesting, I, I, I loved meeting Laird Hamilton, and he's kind of your through line for the book as a character. Now, as you're writing a, a nonfiction book, one of the things I think you do very well in this book is create characters, you create plot, you you keep us really riveted to the book. So talk about um, meeting Laird Hamilton, fi- figuring out who he was, meeting him, getting to know him as a, as a human, and then creating him as a character in your book. Well, I spent five years reporting the book, and, and I moved to Hawaii so I could live with them and be around, because you don't always get a notice when they're going to do something, and I always wanted to be there. But when I first met him, I knew of him. I was certainly familiar with his career. I'd seen pictures of him. I knew that he was a really exceptional person in terms of he was, you know, it's as though nature set out to create a human being, to specifically to ride 100-foot waves, and here he was. His story was almost unbelievable. It was so it pointed him in that direction so squarely, and he was the one who was going to do it. And, and if any, I needed a guide into the world of 100-foot waves. There was no better guide. And when I first met him, it was uh, in 2005, and I was writing a profile on him for Sports Illustrated, and we really connected over our 
passion for the ocean. And I thought maybe I would be scared or intimidated by him, but I never was because he's a much deeper person than you might expect. And he does think exactly as you said of these waves in a very almost, he would not use this term, but almost a spiritual sense. So there's something, there's something very animal-like about this pursuit and, and real. And that, we don't always get that. And it's something that I think resonates deeply with us as well. So I was always very attracted to that experience of being in the ocean with him. It was kind of like being in the ocean with Poseidon or something. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I think that, that is so fascinating about the, the surf, um, the kind of surfing he does, it's called toe surfing. And this is something I kind of was tangentially aware of, but your book really gives us a vivid, vivid picture of what toe surfing is. So for those of us who might have like body surfed at, at the beach in a two-foot swell and got thrown under and with the kelp, tell us what toe surfing is. Well, I've had that experience too, by the way. A four-foot wave just worked me. I ended up in the hospital. So I certainly knew how powerful these waves were. And they, what, what Laird and his friends had set out to do was figure out a way they could ride theoretically any size wave because there's a, there's a threshold at about 40 or 50, no more than 50 feet where you can't catch it by paddling. So traditional big wave surfing with the long boards, you know, very, very hard to do even that. But there was no 60 and 70 foot wave that they could ride. They actually created their own means to do it. So they used jet skis, water ski, tow ropes. They redesigned their boards so they were smaller and really sleek like spears, but they were also very heavy and they had foot straps so they could hold three G's of force, you know, and they had to turn. And and he basically invented this in his garage with some other men on Maui. Um, and, you know, they invented their own sport. That's so fascinating. And it really interests me that these that these waves are so far out to the ocean. I, again, I think of waves as breaking on the beach. And these waves are breaking, in some cases, hundreds of miles uh, beyond the coastline. Right. They need a storm to come along at the right from the right direction. It needs to be a big enough storm. And then it can hit something. And for example, in, in the case of Cortez Bank, which is this wave that's 100 miles off the coast of San Diego, that's a submerged mountain range. It's like a Channel Island that didn't quite make it to the surface. And so the swell hits that thing, you know, like a Mack truck hitting a ramp. And all of a sudden, it just goes into the sky. You've got a breaking wave. And if it wasn't for that object in its way, these particular kind of giant waves wouldn't actually break. So they know where they're going to appear. There are certain places in the world where if a storm comes along, at a certain speed, at a certain size, from a certain direction, and with the right amount of wind, because too much wind can destroy it, they all get on a plane and fly to that spot. Well, that brings to mind one of the things I think that has really made this sport possible, which is the technology, which is a two-edged sword, because you have all this these satellite photos, the, the way improved uh, global imaging, and it makes and email lists makes it possible for these people to get out there. But it also makes it possible for people to get out there who really don't belong out there too. That's exactly right. And that was that conflict I, I addressed. They created the sport really that they were doing in their own backyard, and only a few people were doing it. And obviously, learning how to do it was you know a series of hard lessons, and it didn't seem like something that everybody. Uh, should do or would want to do. And it still isn't. But, you know, now the equipment's all perfect. You can buy it. You know, it's very lucrative to be photographed on a giant wave if you're a surfer and you're looking for sponsorship. And, you know, you or I could be towed to the top of the wave. It's what happens after that that really determines everything. So there was friction. And there's uh, still, I believe, 
quite a lot of friction from, you know, the pioneers who were doing what they thought was very if safe can be used in any part of this situation, they thought they were doing it in the safest way. And then here comes a whole new crew that were just gunning for it without really having done the hard yards and climbed the ladder rung by rung, just kind of depositing themselves at the top of these waves. Well, that's one of the things I think that's most interesting is the way that you explore slowly through the book uh, the surf, surf etiquette and surf culture. And one of the things I think that's very nice about your book that we haven't really talked about is the way you go back and forth between the the various surfers and the, their locations and, again, the scientists who explore these waves. And, and there's a scene that you paint right at the beginning that I thought was really quite awesome where you describe Shackleton, that, who was one of the first people to report a wave, and he looks on the horizon and he sees this enormous wave. It, it's, as you say, it's a, a primal kind of fear. And it looked like clouds to him. And that was something I never understood until I saw a 70-foot wave when they get to be about 60 feet, they start doing something different. Instead of sort of rising and then cresting and breaking like you think of a wave doing, they rise very slowly and very, you know, continuously into a vertical wall. And they advance as a vertical wall. And then there's this feathering that happens at the top of it that it's it's just terrifying, this feathering. And, and that's what could be very confusing if you saw it on the horizon, like, what's that movement in the sky? Like, is that a cloud? Is that... Are those birds? Like, is that a cliff? And it's like, oh, no, that's actually a wave. And I came across those accounts a lot when people would see them on the horizon. You know, that maybe it's a storm front, maybe it's the moon. Mm, No. Well, I think it's uh, the scene that you begin the book with, the discovery at at sea in those those waves. That's a really uh, powerful kind of scene. Uh, Tell us about the discovery, what they intended to do and what they ended up doing. Well, they were going, this is a British research boat. It's about 300 meters long, and it regularly made trips uh, from Scotland to Iceland where they measure samples in the water for salinity and temperature because they want to chart how ocean circulation is changing. So sort of a climate change research cruise and not very unusual. You know, they do it a lot. They do it several times a year. It takes three weeks. And But yet, they're going into the North Atlantic in February, so nobody thought it was going to be glassy still or anything, but they certainly didn't expect what they got. And they got six back-to-back storm, really big depressions, and they were in horrific conditions. And then it, things seemed like they were getting a little bit better. They'd sort of been hove to, pointing the bow into the waves and staying in the same spot, which the captain you know, knew that that was the only way they were going to survive. So things looked like they were getting better. And all of a sudden, for 36 hours, came an, a series of waves that were just off the charts. They were average 61 feet, and they spiked up to close to 100, and they just went through absolute hell. The windows broke out, the furniture was flying around, and they survived it. And what was really cool about that, I mean, <laughs> was that they came back with all the data from the ship because the ship had wave measuring devices on it and wind measuring devices. And after they had a chance to look at all this and think about what had happened, what they realized was that none of the climate models that they rely on or that any ships rely on, none of the wave models had predicted these conditions. So in other words, this very basic tool that we rely on is probably really wrong. That's one of the things that you explore at the Conference of Wave Scientists. And again, this is another really interesting cast of characters. And I want you to talk about, uh, as a writer, uh, 
you you explore the surf world and these surfers, and they're one kind of character. You also explore the science world and talk about creating these different kind of characters for the reader to, you know, get into these very different cultures. Well, I, you know, they're all dealing with this extreme, and what I wanted to do was talk to anybody who could tell me, and by extension, readers, what's a, what's it like to be next to a hundred foot wave, and what's it about, and there's hardly anybody who's lived to tell. And so every time I found one, I'd want to talk to them. And I found the the, the giant brains in this in the wave science world absolutely fascinating. Some of them, you know, have their idiosyncrasies and their eccentricities that come along with being, you know, a quantum physicist or something and dealing with very esoteric, weird things. And then some of them can really talk. And um, I just loved the fact that they were so passionate, all of them, about waves. They, they couldn't talk about anything else. So to me, they had a lot in common with the servers. They all met at the 100-foot wave, but they were just coming from completely different directions. Well, the the history of studying waves is so interesting, too. You talk about John Scott Russell and, and his, the, what he saw called a, a soliton. Explain what a soliton is and uh, take us to Al Osborne and what his thoughts about these waves. Well, Al Osborne is a physicist uh, from Texas. Uh, it was a cosmic ray physicist, and then he uh, he switched to ocean waves because he started working for companies that were trying to learn how to drill in the ocean in the 70s. And he is just very articulate and has figured out a way to use uh, the nonlinear Schrodinger equation to create rogue waves in a tank. So he was one of the first scientists to figure out a means by which, you, yes, you actually do get a th- wave that's three times as big as the waves around it. That said, that wasn't really the, the full answer to the problem, and he's still they're all still working on it. But what gave him the idea to do this was the notion of a soliton, and, and a soliton is basically a wave that behaves like a particle. So I think of it, because, of course, I'm not a scientist, I think of it as, like, a, if you imagine a shark's fin moving along the water as opposed to a wave that oscillates, it comes up and down. This thing is like a lump of water. I think I, in the book I called it a misbehaving lump of water that just has charts its own course. And when John Scott Russell saw that in the 19th century, he was ridiculed. People were like, oh, no, a wave can't do that. And it was only when quantum physics came along and explained that the way it happens in light, that something can be a wave in a particle, it actually can happen in the ocean as well. But he was kind of, his whole science career kind of went out the window when he, he called it the great wave of, of, the great wave of transformation. And, and everybody was like, yeah, <laughs> sure you did, sure you saw that. You know, it, it, there are so many different kinds of waves too. I never thought of a, of a wave that would be un, in, occur entirely underwater. Right. Those giant planetary waves were another thing that Osborne stumbled across when he was on these big drill ships. And they were the drill ships were moving. They were tethered to the bottom and they were moving all over the quite violently in pretty calm waters. And so he started trying to figure out what, what was going on and discovered that there were these massive waves just, you know, miles long and 300 feet high just below the surface. So there was waves on the surface. There was waves below the surface as well. You have your scientist characters. We have our surfer characters. But I think the main characters in the book are these different waves. At There's Jaws. There's Teahupo. There's Egypt. Talk about journeying to these places and how it felt to actually be in the presence. You actually got in the water with some of these waves, which seems uh, somewhat more dangerous than getting in the water with the great white sharks. I, oh, definitely. <laughs> I, I take a shark over a 70-foot wave for sure. But I felt as though what I kept hearing over and over again from the surfers was each wave had a different personality. Like they really, they refer to it as a she. They have names. They, they have different characteristics. And on a different day, they have different characteristics. Like they even 
go so far as to say that a certain storm or a certain swell has a, you know, wicked character and others are, are nice. And they use adjectives that we would normally ascribe to people on these waves. So I, I did. I saw all kinds of different waves. And the Tahitian wave, Tehopu, is extremely weird. It's a very different kind of wave. It's as thick as it is tall, and it breaks on a reef that's almost exposed. It's so shallow, and the wave is so incredibly powerful. It's always referred to as freakish because it, it just basically shoots up, and it's like a gun going off as opposed to your typical wave that you would envision in your head. And uh, surfers are terrified of it because, for example, three months before Laird arrived to surf it in 2000 when he surfed a wave there that's known as the heaviest wave ever ridden because if he had fall, fallen, he would have died. And he would have died on this jagged coral. A, a guy had gotten killed. He had his face ripped off on this reef. And people had been so severely people had been killed and so severely injured that some servers won't go there. They just won't go there. And I just looked at that wave and thought, you know, meat grinder, buzzsaw, you know, that's what I thought of. But then if you go to Maui and you see the the majestic jaws, it's like, you know, a Japanese landscape painting. It's just perfect. But at the same time, it's perfect. It's so beautiful and it's so incredibly dangerous. That that mix of beauty and power was really cool. And, and Egypt is the same way, but it's a much more vertical face. Then you have Mavericks on the coast of San Francisco, which is a dark, a dark and spooky water. You know, there's there's it's black. The water looks black. There are great white sharks everywhere, and and it's just a wave that is is has got a dark side. I, I think I referred to it as an assassin, mm-hmm. and it has killed people. So they all they all have their own unique quirks and characteristics, and uh, but they're all beautiful. All, underline all of this both from the scientists and the surfers, are concerns about global uh, climate change. And I think that's one of the uniting themes of this book. And I think it's your perspective or the perspective of the people you talk to is really interesting because all of them absolutely really believe it's happening. But they it, it tends to be almost a more of a religious belief that, that when you try to get to the specifics, there's no way to predict. And I think that some of this stems back from just the fact that we didn't even understand that waves as big as these that you are now clearly documented could exist. And I think there's some of that same uncertainty hovering around global climate change and also a fear that it could be just as bad as the big waves. We don't know very much about these big systems, you know, because some of the ocean cycles, they're, so we now just beginning to know that some of them are 30 years in length, and who knows how many thousand-year ones there are. And we've only been looking with satellites, you know, in any degree of accuracy for a nanosecond, you know, like since probably around the early 80s. So there's so much that we don't know about our the, the forces that run the planet. And what I discovered when I started talking to the scientists about climate change is they all believe that things are changing. They don't know exactly how because the feedback loops are so complicated and the models are doing the best they can with the information that's in them, but we can't model for variables that we don't even know about yet. And at the same time, as one scientist said to me, uncertainty doesn't mean it's not happening. And one of the driving questions of the book for me was, are we, if we're going to get more storms, if we're heading into a stormier world, so much of this concerns the ocean because the ocean's like the vast, vast majority of the planet, you know, by volume probably, around three quarters of the planet, what's that going to do? We all think about, hey, it's going to get a little hotter out or drier or whatever. What's it going to do to waves? And what I, the conclusion I came to is nobody thinks it's not going to be. It, nobody 
disagrees that it's going to be stormier and that the extremes are going to become more extreme. And they know for a fact that the ocean sea level is rising, and they argue about how fast, but it's rising pretty dramatically. They know that the glaciers are melting. That does a lot to volatility with earthquakes and volcanic activity, which in turn can create landslides, which are sometimes the driving force behind the biggest waves in the world, tsunamis. Well, that's one of the things I think is so interesting that you mentioned that with it, with the ocean levels rising, what that implies is there's more water on top of the ocean floor, which is putting more pressure on top of the ocean floor, which is not necessarily solid and prone to, as you say, these huge underwater landslides, which can lead to these enormous tsunamis. And earthquakes. I mean, if you think about it, if you had a a weight and you put a, a weight on a trampoline and you put a bigger weight on a trampoline, like it would move. And so we're talking about <laughs> yeah. moving the moving the Earth's crust here. And and this was when I was first told about this was from a scientist in the UK that they call Disaster Man. But it was Lloyd's of London who <laughs> referred me to him. So he's got great credentials. He's he's a published author and extremely well regarded. But I thought I'm going to check this out, you know, very thoroughly. And everybody all they all agree that that, that this could definitely have a change in terms of. Um, frequency of earthquakes, frequency of volcanic activity. And it, when the last ice age happened and all the glaciers poured into the ocean, there was definitely a lot of action. Well, I thought it was so great that you went to Lloyd's of London. Talk about the bell. And then let's talk a little bit more about Neil Roberts, who you talked to, and then Bill McGuire, the Apocalypso. Well, that uh, Lloyd's of London, I could write an entire book on that. And it doesn't seem logical that the insurance industry would be that fascinating. But Lloyd's of London is so they're just they're they're trying to weigh the risk of everything. It's like they're so incredibly good at what they do, but it's also this implies all this science to find out like should we insure this particular area of the coast and you know what what is climate change going to do to their bottom line is their biggest fear right now. If they had something like Katrina and it was bigger and it impacted an area that was, you know, let's just say Katrina itself was was very devastating to the global insurance industry. But if it had been another city, like let's say it had been New York City or something like that, like that's a different ballgame. And that's what they're trying to figure out right now is how can we hedge our bets? Um, so it was there was a lot going on there. And they, of course, are insuring ships. And I wanted to know how many ships really are disappearing because I had heard such startling numbers from scientists, in fact, that, you know, two freighters a week go missing with all hands and nobody knows what happens. And that was another one of those things like, how, what do you mean these large ships are going missing and we don't know where or why? So I went there to find out and just had an, a fabulous time because they've kept records for, for 400 years about what's going on in the shipping world. And to read the, the things that have happened is to know that shipping is <laughs> a fairly colorful and dangerous business. And the number that I came away from, Lloyd's of London, feeling comfortable to write in the book is two ships a month, two large ships a month. But that's still a lot. And while, while I was there, they referred me to a scientist that they've brought in to talk about tsunami risks and more extreme things. He, his name is Bill McGuire, and uh, he's also known as Disaster Man. And he's written books with titles like Apocalypse and The End is Near. But he's got, he, as I wrote in the book, he would be, it'd be comforting to ignore him, but he's got all the scientific credentials and people hire him to predict this stuff. And he talks about asteroids. He talks about very big things that he calls GGs, global geophysical events, tsunamis that would wipe out, you know, all of Western Europe, things like that. And he, you know, is quite convinced that there's an island in the Canary Islands, volcanic island, that is very active and has a crack in it from an earlier eruption. 
and part of the island, half of it, is 15 feet lower than the other half and facing towards the east coast of North America. So if a really big eruption came along, and this island really did crack in half and slid, that, that western flank slid into the sea, it would mean a tsunami wave of about 150 feet hitting New York City nine hours later. And he got a lot of attention for that. And and he has other things that he believes like that. And, and the thing is, he's 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 for real. He really has the credentials, and he's he's got a point. Well, one of the things you talk about a 150 foot wave. There's a you also mentioned the documented 1,740 foot wave, one and one third uh, Empire State buildings that wiped out uh, a small inlet in Alaska. Tell us about that. Well, that's the biggest wave measured that we know, and we know exactly how big that wave was because it happened in this, it almost looks like a fjord. It's a long, thin bay, about three miles wide, about eight miles long. And it at the end of it is the Fairweather Mountain Range and two glaciers and a very steep mountainside. So the Fairweather Fault runs through this mountain range, and that's a fault that is really active and really powerful. And it shook in 1958, July 1958, with about a 9-0 earthquake and plunged millions of yards of rock and ice into the bay, which was 700 feet deep where it hit. So what happened was this epic splash, just giant (laughs) splash, came up and it scalped all the trees and all the soil. And just basically, if you look at the pictures, which are in the book, it looks like someone took a razor and just cut the forest away so they could measure with quite good accuracy that it was 1,740 feet. And when they really started to explore that bay, they found out that those very big waves, like 200, 500, 800 feet, it happens pretty regularly in there. Well, one of the things you talk about tsunami is that they move as fast as a jet. And that's a, that's a, a startling uh, concept. Well, they're they're the longest wavelength waves, so they you know they're they're there's so much water and energy in a tsunami that it's just it's just sort of undulating along in this extremely long wavelength, and then when it hits land, that the back of the wave comes forward for a long time. So, if so as one scientist said to me, if it's a hundred feet, it's going to be a hundred feet for five minutes. So that's a very different kind of wave, um, and at the same time, probably one of the most destructive waves. Now. Um destruction is the uh, business of the salvagers in South Africa. Tell us about them. Well, I love them. Another book unto themselves, I think. People ask me a lot about rogue waves and where they occur. And one of the places where that I refer to as a rogue wave factory in one of the world's busiest shipping lanes is the southeast coast of South Africa, where they have a current, a very powerful current, like the Gulf Stream. It's called the Agullis Current, but it runs in the opposite direction, down from Madagascar. And then these big storms from Antarctica come up and hit it. They, they kind of collide. It's like a wave-current interaction and create basically huge, steep waves that can go a little bit haywire. And then they've got the ships, the oil ships, that were too big to go through the Suez Canal, tracking down there and getting into these waves. Um, so there's a very big and experienced culture of marine salvagers who helicopter repel, take helicopters and rappel down onto the decks of these boats so that they can try to keep them from breaking up. And these things do, because of their shape in waves, break up. It, it's sort of like distressingly easily. And they don't want all that oil to be out or whatever the ship is carrying. It could be poisonous pesticides. And so um, they're very good at their jobs. And I spent some time with them, you know, hearing about the things they had done and came away thinking, these guys are every bit the cowboys that these big wave surfers are, except they're dealing with 
such incredibly hazardous materials and conditions on top of dealing with these waves. Well, that's one of the things I think is so interesting that you mentioned that the ferry that went down that had uh, that it was upside down and then they said, oh, I'm sorry, there's lots of deadly pesticide in there. Right. And so here's here's their choice. Their choice is this was in an area called the Galapagos of Asia. Asia. You know, the, the choice is we're going to go in there and not know. We don't know. Everybody's dead at this point. 800 people died. What what's is this stuff loose? Are we going to breathe it? Like what's going to happen? This is this toxic pesticide. Or are we going to leave it to break up and and flow into this pristine marine environment? You also talked to Jean-Pierre Arobonis, the weather guy, and he has this lonely, eerie talk about going there and meeting him. Well, he's like this savant. All the salvagers rely on JP to tell them when the rogue waves are going to come. And it's not that he can always do that, but there are certain conditions under which they pretty much know on that particular part of the African coast that you can get rogue waves uh, and by rogue waves, I mean a wave that's at least two times and maybe even four times as big as the other waves around it. And and they they rely on him to tell them what's the wind doing, what are the tides doing, and, and throw everything into the hopper and help them figure out how they're going to rescue these boats. And he's up on a mesa kind of above Cape, you know, the Table Mountain, which is just above the Cape of Good Hope. And he, you know, is next to a squatter town, has all this satellite equipment, and it's just this very interesting setup and this very interesting guy who really loves the ocean and seems to have the same sort of savant-like relationship with it that, say, Laird Hamilton does in The Waves. You know, that's one of the things that I thought was so interesting, that both Laird and some of the scientists have this feeling that uh, I think that they really have to respect the nature and understand it and understand that they're that the world is going to show them things that they wouldn't believe could exist. And the, Laird talks about puffy chest, mm-hmm. like standing at the standing in front of the ocean and saying, you know, I'm the man. That's that's the opposite of how they operate. That that's they are quite superstitious and they believe in all the Hawaiian traditions of respect the ocean, respecting nature, because the Hawaiians knew if you didn't, it was gonna take you out. And that was the only way that they could survive, was understanding how things worked. You know, they had their canoes with all their supplies in it, and they're landing on the islands. And if they screw up, if they didn't understand the tides or they didn't understand the wind, they weren't going to survive on these islands. Um, and that whole idea of respecting the ocean is inculcated in absolutely everything they do. Um, and, you know, they are, they, I think they consider themselves to be lucky to come back when they come back from riding these waves and not ever thinking that they have conquered or, you know, bested nature. It's just a question of being, as, as Brett would say, given another ticket. Now, these people kind of work in pairs. And I love uh, Laird and, and uh, Hamilton and, and Dave Kalama. So, and, and you chart their incredible ride. Uh, talk about the, this um, ride on Egypt, which is... Um, undocumented. It was the tree that fell in the forest that nobody heard. Right, exactly. And it was a day that nobody thought would exist because the storm that produced these waves, which were 80, 90, 100, and even larger feet tall, that storm was supposed to really not hit Maui. And yet Laird was there because his wife was just about to have a baby. And they thought that they were going to have maybe a 30 or 40 foot day. And the weather was weird. They couldn't see anything. It was gray, low ceiling. And when they got out there, there was only one other tow team. And that's that that never happens. And, you know, they couldn't 
see very well because of the fog. And the airport went on IFR, instrument flights only. So the helicopter safety pilot that they normally have hovering above them when they're riding giant waves couldn't hover over them because he was in the landing path of the airport. And uh, so they were alone. They didn't have any safety backup. They didn't have anybody. And they got into a situation that, that really humbled both of them to the point where I think it really took weeks for me to drag out all the details of what had happened. And when I did, the more I did, the more astonished I was by what had actually happened. And the the bottom line is they were just, their lives really hung by a thread, I think, out there that day. And they, they know it. They both know it. I think that's true, too. And one of the things that you, <clears throat> the the things we come away from this book with is that there are there are these forces out there that are so powerful and so primal that we cannot really conceive of them and we can't expect them and we can't yet predict them because the global climate is so complex. There are so many variables in it that we have to just uh, back off a bit, I think. Yeah, I think that somebody said to me yesterday, do you think we'll ever really understand all these variables and all these things about the ocean? And I had to really think about that because in order to understand it, I think in order to get to the next level of understanding, it takes going to take a different kind of exploration, a different kind of, a different kind of creativity, and a lot more humility. And you know, it always drives me absolutely crazy when I hear about geoengineering schemes. You know, let's dump all these iron filings in the ocean so we can, you know, affect the pH or whatever. And it's like we don't even we're not even in kindergarten in terms of understanding what kind of effect that would have. And yet we think we're going to monkey around with these forces that sustain us. Like, it, it, it really isn't, I don't think, the way that we are going to be able to progress in, in terms of, a, you know, our, our relationship with nature and our relationship with these hugely powerful forces. Well, uh, also, I think it, you paint a picture, too, of people who echo the power of those forces. I mean, somebody like Laird Hamilton and, and, and some of these scientists, I think, have... As humans, they're kind of the human counterparts to these waves. And I think that they point a way for us to approach this with, as you say, humility, but also to to at least begin to, by approaching it with humility, at least we're not like walking into the fire. Right. I mean, I think people, I hope people don't come away from this book feeling more scared of the ocean. I mean, that was certainly something that, my goal is for people to understand it more and to understand its majesty more and to learn just to, to take people on a, this sort of wild ride through this extreme part of the ocean. You know, the most important thing, I think, is that we we learn about these things and because we're coexisting with them. And that's going to be the best way to coexist. I mean, climate change is only going to be a problem if, if we're really rigid with the status quo. Like, we need to know that, no, you shouldn't put a city there. And and. And then react to that, not just think, damn it, we're putting our city here, because you are not going to be able to hold back a 100-foot wave. No, no. Nor are you in the pursuit of a 100-foot wave going to uh, be able to necessarily hold back the the bandits in Mexico who are going to (laughs) rob you. Talk (laughs) us about I mean, that sounds like perhaps in many ways the most dangerous uh, journey you took for this book. Well, I wanted to capture this surrealness of that. I was following a band of surfers that were chasing a very big storm down the west coast of uh, the U.S. from from right below, from Mavericks, just below San Francisco, down to Todos Santos Island off the coast of Ensenada. And they'd been out for 72 hours. And they were launching themselves into these 60 and 70 foot waves, really dangerous storm. In fact, a storm that killed three people the first day I got there. 
And, you know, I'm having this hard time even following them, and I'm not surfing 70-foot waves. And so this notion of how extreme the extremes were, and they just sort of plunged into Mexico in the middle of the night with all their gear, with all their surfboards, through this gauntlet that had been you know, that basically the State Department said, don't do that because they're targeting vehicles with surfboards on them and pulling them over in paramilitary-style criminal operations. And here we are just driving straight down there towards this wave because there was just nothing that was going to keep them from being there the morning when the sun came up and that swell hit. Well, you know, also, I have to say that you are, in many ways, like these photographers who follow these people. That's in, uh, as much or more danger than the surfers themselves. So tell us about some of these photographers. There's a guy who you show who's, who takes pictures from underneath the wave, which just seems kind of really crazy. I love the photographers, and they're really these unsung heroes of this. I mean, this whole notion of getting the picture, getting the picture mm-hmm. of the, the giant wave is really important in terms of generating the endorsements and the attention and the things that allow them to drop everything and fly to Tahiti and, you know, have jet skis stashed in Chile and all this, the kinds of things they need to do for this, you know, basically it's a global scavenger hunt to find these giant waves. And so the pictures are important and the photographers are this critical part of the machine. And they're doing pretty much everything the surfers are doing, but with 100 pounds of equipment strapped around their neck. And they hang from helicopters and they get into the water and they're swimming around with these, you know, 16 millimeter film cameras and giant plastic housings. Uh, a couple of them are champion swimmers. A couple of them are champion surfers. But the bottom line is they have to be pretty comfortable in the water or they would they wouldn't make it. Well, you talk about a global scavenger hunt. Uh, tell us about the man who ignited that. And he, Laird was not too happy with that kind of uh, pursuit. Well, I think it was inevitable that somebody would seize the, the – it's a nice round number. It's very sexy, the 100-foot wave. And so that it wasn't really a question of – you know, who did it or it was just inevitable. But Laird felt that the notion when it was Billabong, the surf company Billabong uh, had various names for this. They called it the Odyssey. They called it um, Men Who Ride Mountains. And they had other names. There was different waves and different competitions. And Laird has always shied away from any sort of competition surfing. He watched his father do it. He never wanted it to be about somebody else's evaluation of what he was doing. And he didn't like the idea of the 100-foot wave being some big prize because, to quote him, would you rather be attacked by a Great Dane or a pit bull? So you get a 40-foot wave that's very thick and nasty, like this wave in Tahiti. That's a much harder wave to ride than a 100-foot, you know, face that is relatively, you know, less dangerous because it doesn't have that kind of vortex to it. So he didn't like the designation. And I think he was also worried that after a whole career spent doing everything he could to ride the biggest waves that the ocean could put out, that somebody else would get lucky. That on that day, that person would just be in the right place at the right time because there is this element of luck to getting the biggest wave of the day. You may be rescuing somebody else or helping your partner when the biggest wave of the day comes through. You may have gone to the boat to get a power bar. You may be in any number of different places. And he didn't want his whole career to come down to this designation that you know was really not in his control. He wanted it to be more like a body of work. So um, the other part of that equation, of course, is that he resented and his he and his crew resented the notion of claim stakers, basically, of, you know, people coming out of the woodwork to try to get the, that picture, to try to get their shot at it without really having taken the time to possibly to do so safely. Well, one of the things that I loved about your book <clears throat> is that you give us a portrait of Laird that is, I think, more powerful than any of the surf pictures you can see because you get us inside his mind and to respect both the man 
and the waves. And also you, who in the very end actually does end up in, in some of this water. How did that feel? It certainly gets your attention. And, you know, when I felt the power of, you know, 40-foot wave, I understood I understood why they they did everything that they did in order to feel that. It's just this power that it's the power of this primal force that runs everything. And it's so strong and so beautiful. And at the same time, you're so out of control of it. I, I tried to turn my head to look up at the lip of the wave behind us, and I couldn't turn my head because of the G-forces. You know, so I was just really in the moment of of experiencing all of it. It took me a long time to actually just sort of like, stop thinking about it. You know, you just Every cell of your body just comes alive at that moment. I've been speaking with Susan Casey. Her new book is The Wave in Pursuit of the Rogues, Freaks, and Giants of the Ocean. Thank you for joining me, Susan. My pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.